following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Uh, we are continuing through our series in the book of Hebrews. It's called Never Better, the idea being that if you have come to faith in Christ, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, kind of regardless of what else is going on in your life, the, the hope is you, you can say with confidence, with real conviction, that you have never been better simply because you have Jesus. On the other side of that, if you're someone who has not yet come to faith in Christ, there's certain elements of uh, what it means to be a human. There's certain... Um, issues and, and, and pain points that they're never going to get better until you can come to the true source of hope and life in Christ. And so why did we name this series that? Well, because the book of Hebrews is, is, it says a lot that the primary thrust and thread throughout the whole thing is opening us up to the idea that Jesus is superior to all things. Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. Now, the author does this uh, argumentation primarily through the lens of comparing Christ in the new covenant to the old covenant and showing that Jesus is better than even the God instituted old covenant system, that this new covenant in Christ, this is the full expression of how God intends for us to be in relationship with him. Okay. So uh, the author starts out chapter one saying that Jesus is better than the prophets because the prophets of old saw in pieces, but Jesus is the whole picture. He then moves on to say that Jesus is better than the angels, uh, that there was an issue in that time, and it it hasn't totally gone away, of people uh, being distracted by the worship of or overemphasis upon angels, okay? So he kind of takes that apart. And then moving into the back half of chapter 2, uh, the author anticipates the argument someone might have. Like, hold on, what are you talking about? What, what, why are you saying Jesus is better than all the Old Testament prophets and all the mighty deeds they did? And you're saying Jesus is better than angels? How could you say that? Jesus was just a man. So the author then deals with the fact that Jesus' humanity is a key part of what God did in Jesus being our Savior and, and fulfilling the plan of redemption. That Jesus, though God, had to be a man to stand in our place and to fulfill all that needed to be fulfilled for us to be saved, okay? And so then that brings us now to chapter 3. And uh, now we're going to see the author move into an argumentation for the superiority of Jesus that it would earn a good old-fashioned stoning if made among uh, those still trying to operate under the old covenant. If he'd have just kind of stood in a public square among uh, many Jews in the day that this was written and, and made the argument he's about to make, uh, they would have been looking for rocks, many of them. Like, we're, we're going to hit this guy in the face with rocks until he's dead, right? Like that kind of thing. That's what I mean by an old school stoning. Uh, okay, so, <clears throat> and I was trying to think, like chapter three to me, it, <laughs> this, this is really a, people... People would have been frustrated by maybe what he had to say thus far, but this boy, what he's about to go into, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of, when I was a little tyke, um, I think that the part of your brain that is supposed to assess risk was broken, okay? Um, and, and I, 
what? <laughs> I, could, uh, I could genuinely give you many supporting pieces of evidence for that. Uh, I've got scars all over my head and, and other places that, that would prove this point, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share just one for now to make this point. Um, I, I couldn't have been more than five or six years old, and uh, I don't even know why I was across the street at a neighbor's house just wandering around doing whatever I was doing, but I noticed on the soffit of the neighbor's house, right? They're, they had their garage door, then, you know, there's a soffit. I noticed this giant wasp nest on my neighbor's house. Now, I think any normal kid with a lick of sense probably would have noticed that wasp nest and just went on about their business, you know, whatever I was doing. But not me. I, for some reason, decided that this wasp nest was my business. I don't know if I imagined myself deputized by some higher power to rid the neighborhood of this pestilence or what, what my issue was. Uh, but <clears throat> I, I took it as my responsibility. I was going to handle this. And so here I am, just a little fella. I go find a stick. And, uh, I, you know, because of how this ended, I don't think the Lord anointed me for this, but I just, I, get, I think I got lucky. I, you know, I had a stick, man. And I just stood down there with my little wee self and I whipped this stick at the, at the wasp nest, and I remember the stick just dead smack in that wasp nest, and it falls to the ground, and then everything went slow motion. And I remember this one wasp, I could watch it, like, I, I think it darted like a lightning bolt from Zeus's throne. It was very fast, but I could see it happening. You know how, like, when adrenaline goes, things slow down? This thing went, it, it dropped down off of that soffit, and it just kept coming, 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 coming. And this thing stung me right between the eyes. I'm talking just nailed me. And I just grabbed my face and I'm screaming and wailing, trying to run across the street, tripping over the curb. I got wrecked. And, then, and I mean, that's, you know, it's like some tender skin there, especially when you're a little kid. You know, big old knot, hurt for a long time. And uh, basically, my point in, in telling you that story is the, the author's, risk assessment might have been broken going in on what he's about to go in on and trying to tell the Jews that Jesus is superior to Moses, okay? Because that's what he's doing. He's about to hit the hornet nest here. Uh, and, that, and he's going to say Jesus is more faithful than Moses. That would get the wasps angry, okay? Not only is Jesus more faithful than Moses, deserves more glory than Moses, okay? Uh, and that's this, this is a proverbial stick to the wasp nest, okay? So that's what we're reading today. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 3 in Hebrews, okay? So let's do that. Here we go. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. For he's been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. 
as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Praise God for his word. Amen. Let's go back to verse one and, and work through this. The first thing we see, therefore, so the, the, now we're moving this idea ties to the other ideas. That's why I want to keep kind of refreshing this on where we've been in Hebrews. First thing he says, holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling. One thing you'll see, and, and we've already seen it much throughout chapter one, two, and now in three. The way this author talks to the people, talks to those that are, are believers but may be tempted to go back and, and to something more comfortable, go back to something that maybe makes more sense on the surface. And I'm, I mean the Old Testament system of, of sacrifice and all of that and obedience to the law versus grace, which is a wild concept. This, this temptation, there's this, there's this constant idea that comes through, calling brethren here, um, partakers of a heavenly calling. And what does he say to do? Consider Jesus, right? And there's this, I, I just want to encourage you, I mean, we've, we've done a whole sermon series around this idea, so I'm not going to belabor this point, but I just, I want to submit to you here again, since it's right in our face. Friends, for those who belong to Jesus, it is vitally important that the primary way we understand ourselves and who we are is in relation to who he is. There are so many ways for us to identify ourselves. There are so many ways for us to understand who we are. It could come from all different angles. It could come from all different parts of our life. You could primarily see yourself in relation to your earthly family. You could primarily see yourself in relation to your occupation. You could primarily see yourself um, in uh, relation to the lack of those things, even on the negative side of the coin. But friends, the, the consistent call of the scriptures is to see yourself primarily in relation to who Christ is and what he has said about you. So the fact that Christ is the firstborn, right? That's, that's why he's our brother. And that's the idea that's being talked about here. And, and I've told you, because it's come up multiple times, this idea of firstborn isn't that you have God the Father and then Jesus is the first being created by God. Jesus is God. In the beginning, he was with God and he was God, right? So it, it's not that. It's that, and, and you see this idea come through even more in, in what we read today, that Jesus was faithful over the house, the house that he built, that he's the son, the firstborn. That's a title of, it's an honorary title, particularly in this cultural context. The firstborn was the one responsible for the family. Okay, he was the one that, that all of the inheritance, you know, big, at least the primary cut of the inheritance came to. Everything belonged to him. He's the one that would take over, okay? So that's, that's what we see here. And, and that you are a brother or a sister, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. This has to be a primary identity marker, that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. So not just that God saved us in order to be a part of this family, but also to participate in the heavenly calling that comes with being a part of this family, okay? Which is to be salt and light in the world, to be heralds, ambassadors of this great and glorious gospel to the ends of the earth. This, this should be, if someone was to poke you and say, who are you? The hope is the first thing that genuinely comes out of your heart. Not some kind of static, legalistic, I know this is the right answer, but really because you're convinced of it to the depths of who you are, that I'm a son or daughter of God, that I'm a part of the family of God, that I have a divine mission and purpose for being here. That's first, because here's the beauty of that. We sang about it this morning. All other foundations are sinking sand. If you're primarily, who you are primarily is in relation to your biological family, friends, those those situations can change. 
If, it's, if you primarily see yourself through being good at your occupation, that could change a lot of different ways. The only core identity that cannot be taken from you, that cannot be shaken, is the one that comes by grace through faith in Christ. That we are holy brethren, that we're part of God's family, and thus a part of the heavenly calling, okay? And, and this word here, when he says consider Jesus, I just want to point out to you that this is not, um, hey, think about this a second. That's not what consider means here. Consider means to fix your attention upon, to give a, a, a serious look, a long look at what you're being called to look at. And that's here, Jesus. What about Jesus? That he is both the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, apostle <clears throat> roughly translates to one that is sent, okay? You can, you can capture the idea by, by almost all the way by thinking of an ambassador, right? What an ambassador does is goes from one place to represent that place to another place, right? An ambassador from the U.S. may go to another country. They're there to represent the U.S. to that country, and Vice versa, okay? So as, as the apostle of our confession, Jesus came representing God to humanity. As the apostle of our confession, he represented God to humanity. That's why throughout the scriptures, we see this idea, throughout the New Testament, we see this idea that Jesus is the fullest expression of God. That if you want to understand how God thinks about things or what God would say in a given situation, look to Jesus, and if Jesus did it or said it or responded that way, you can take it all the way to the bank. That's, that is God doing it, right? Amen, okay? So as the apostle of our confession, Jesus represented God to us. We know more, much, much more about God. We know the most we could possibly know about God because of Jesus, all that he did and taught, okay? As the high priest of our confession, what does that look like? Well, what, what did the high priest do? The high priest would go into the tabernacle or the temple and represent humanity to God. And so Christ came, was an apostle, right? Represented God to us. And then as he ascended back to heaven, he sits at the right hand of God as our advocate, representing man to God. As God looks at us, if he was just to look at us and not consider the blood of Christ and his sacrifice, all, all he could see in us is our wretchedness. All he could see in us is our the fact that we are not deserving of relationship with him. But as he looks through the lens, tinted crimson by the blood of Christ, as he looks through the, the, the fact that Christ is our advocate, that Christ took the punishment we deserve so that we could get the blessing that he deserves, we are then represented. He is, he is a faithful high priest. Now there's much more to say about that, but, but the author gets into it deeper further on in this letter. So we're, we'll... We'll unpack that more later, but just, just so the basic premise is, as the apostle of our confession, he was representing God to us. As the high priest of our confession, he's representing us to God. Jesus is the whole package, okay? He, he, does, he does it all. Jesus does it all with a smile, okay? He's not sweating at all. Got all the power for it. Amen. Okay, so that brings us to verse two. He was faithful to him who appointed him. He, Jesus, was faithful to him, God the Father, who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house, okay? 
the one thing, and I've tried to say this to you, as we, as we move through the book of Hebrews, we could misunderstand the idea to be that the old covenant is bad. The old covenant is not bad because God instituted it. The old covenant is good, but it had a purpose and a time in God's overall arc of redemption. And that is really a lot of what we're dealing with here is this idea, as we work through the book of Hebrews, it's not that what God did in the old covenant was bad. It's that it was for a time and it wasn't the fullest expression of God's plan of redemption unfolded. That is Christ. That is done through Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, okay? So I just want to make sure, when you read, <laughs> this is like, just to say flat out, this is like hitting a wasp nest for the author here to say anything about Jesus being possibly more faithful than Moses or deserving more glory than Moses to the ancient Jewish mind, and there would be even probably some people today that would feel this way, that that is almost akin to blasphemy. You, you don't, don't come, don't talk about Moses, man. But, but if you look at verse two, it, the idea is he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also in all his house. So author here is saying Moses was also faithful to the one who sent him to God, right? So let's just keep, we just want to make sure we understand here as this is, as this comparison, it's not, it's not Old Testament bad, Moses bad, prophets bad, Jesus good, New Testament good. It's these things were good, okay? Old Testament prophets good, Moses good, all that. It's good. Jesus is best. That's what superiority means. He's the best, okay? He's the fullest expression of what God is doing with us and through us. And so I just want to make sure everyone knows we're not dogging Moses here as we move into this chapter. We're not trying to throw shade at Big Mo today. All right, nor was the author of Hebrews. That's not the point. Uh, but it is about putting Moses and all that he did by the power of God in faithfulness to God in its proper place and context in the overall arc of redemptive history. Okay? And that's important. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if some of you know this, but Moses was considered by many the greatest of, of prophets of them all. Okay? Now, there's kind of de- maybe depending on who you would have asked at that point. It may have been a close race between Abraham and Moses on kind of like who was the greatest. You know, Abraham being the father of the faith and, and the, the original one that responded to God in faith that kind of got the whole thing kicked off. But man, uh, there would have been many that would have, there's many that even regarded Moses uh, to be higher than angels in terms of how he should be kind of reverenced. Okay, so you, you can see, <laughs> and I'm trying to give you all that, so that you understand, so it, it doesn't seem to you like this, this author is just creating problems that don't need to be solved, right? Like just making stuff up. These were real issues. And as I've said before, just because these were the examples of things people were tempted in this time to worship or put in front of Jesus, just because you maybe have not been tempted to worship angels and or give Moses too much glory, doesn't mean you are not tempted to slide other things into those slots where it was, where these, those things were for these people. Okay, let's be, make sure we're really clear about that and humble about that reality. And, and we'll talk about some of what that might look like, okay? So that brings us to verse three and four. He's continuing. So, you know, here we are. We're jumping in. He jumped out here. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So big idea. 
Jesus actually should get more glory than Moses, okay? So if he survived the rocks after that one, now he's, gonna, now he's just gonna give you an analogy. In the same way that the builder of a house should get more glory than the house, right? So I don't know that you need this, but just imagine how silly this would be, right? So let's, let's say somebody builds uh, the, the biggest, coolest, most ornate, beautiful mansion that's been built in in the continental United States history. Let's say somebody takes on that endeavor and I don't know, you know, they use a bunch of old world artisanship to do it. And it's just this incredible feat of, of building prowess. And, and the, the architect and the builder of it, it knows that people are going to want to see it. So they, you know, there's, there's some kind of system where you can pay and, and, and you can come and have a tour with the architect and the, the chief builder that put together this grand house. You can go through and look at all of the beauty of it and, and ooh and ah and all of that. And so you show up for that tour. You're like so excited because, you know, we're just pretending you care about some big house that somebody built. Maybe you don't, but just pretend you do for a second, okay? So you're really amped. Like, I, want, I can't wait to see these ornate curved staircases and all the marble and what, whatever it would be that excites you in a house, okay? Maybe it's one made out of shipping containers because you really like modern stuff. I don't care, okay? But here's the thing, all right? what would it be like for you to walk up and you're supposed to get this tour from this architect that it was, it was that mind and those hands that, that brought this whole thing together. And, and, and you, know, you run up the front steps and run right past the architect and run up to the building. You're like, oh my gosh, look at this brick right here. Look at this brick. Isn't this brick wonderful? And you pull out your selfie stick and you're doing selfie sticks with the brick, the one brick that just really, this brick in this house is just doing it for me, right? Like, I, I can't get over it. And, and you just, you spend the entire time that you're supposed to be touring with this guy that built the house, looking at the brick and taking pictures with the brick and just salivating over the sheer beauty of the brick. And then, and then you just left. You never even talked to the architect or the builder or spent any time or heard anything about what it was like to build the house and why. I mean, wouldn't that be goofy if you did that? We do that all the time to God. Moses is a brick in the house. Jesus built the house. Jesus is the son who reigns and rules over the house. And we have a tendency, don't think you don't, to get excited. Maybe Moses isn't your brick, but we all as humans have a tendency to get excited about bricks instead of the builder. For sure we do. This is a great day to say this, old pastor appreciation day, that could happen with a pastor easily. That could happen with your favorite Christian influencer, whatever that means. Or Christian worship artist, or blah, 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 podcast host, whatever the deal is. Very much, you could get super amped about and, and, and teeter on inordinate worship of a brick instead of the builder of the house. So let's just know that about ourselves and watch out for it. And definitely don't do that to me. Probably the fact that I can't even remember Pastor Appreciation Month every year means you're not at much risk of that with me. So that's great. I just try to stay kind of, you know, low key and let you see how dumb I am and tell you that I'm so weak my heat's on at my house right now. I'm trying to help you. Don't be doing that Moses thing with me, man. Look at this guy, right? No temptation there. That's good. You understand what I'm saying, though? And, and, here, and that's, look, <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, it, <clears throat> th- that can happen. It doesn't even have to be 
a pastor or a Christian influencer or a Christian music artist. There's people that have things to say out here, right? Early on in this sermon series, I, I, I walked through some quotes with you from who, the people that Time Magazine says are the 100 most influential people for this year. So just be mindful, man, of where influence flows into your heart and mind and how much attention you give to what, all right? Don't, don't be lifting bricks up in, in, in the place that only the builder should belong, all right? And for sure, not bricks that only have your ear because of, of some arbitrary sense of fame or whatever that we give to people, which is just nuts how we do that. But I don't have time to get really make you feel good about that. So we'll move on. Verses five and six, okay? Uh, sorry, verse four. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So he should get all the glory. Our attention, our affection, our adoration, our allegiance should be focused upon him. Okay? That doesn't mean we don't respect bricks, right? It doesn't mean we don't interlink with other bricks as a part of doing the job of being the house that God has built. Yes, of course. Amen. That's good. You know, we can, we can even give honor. The Bible says we should outdo one another in showing honor. We can honor each other, but it's about how these things stack up in terms of our hearts and, and our loves and our affection and where our hope is placed, okay? All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is the only one you can stand on and it, it ain't moving. That foundation doesn't move, amen. Okay, let's look at verses five and six. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, it's real interesting. Some of you have probably thought of, of, of some of this, <clears throat> or you've at least noticed it or began to notice it. What is the big message here? The big message here is, yes, Moses was, faith, was faithful, Jesus even more so. Moses deserved honor, Jesus even more so. Why? The key word over and over again, you, you see, what, are, what is being appealed to here? Okay? It's, he was faithful, right? And all, now, now Moses was faithful, but Christ was faithful. I'm just moving through the, you, you catching a pattern here? Faithfulness is the idea. Over and over again, faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. What, what is it that should cause us to trust and worship Jesus? Well, it's a lot of things, but one, right now, what we're keying in on is his faithfulness. That idea of faithfulness. And so, and we can see some of the, the idea here is Moses was faithful to what he was called to do. Jesus, even more so. But there's, God, all through the scriptures, God does this, but there's one of those things that happens when you start to put Moses and Jesus next to each other. It's like, oh, hold on a second. Was, was God... Was God kind of tipping his hand, giving clues? I think some of this has to do with the fact that he, <laughs> this, some of the things I'm going to share with you right now should have helped first century Jews for sure that knew their, their Old Testament Bible, that, that as things started to unfold and, and Jesus did the things he did, their high esteem of Moses, they should have gone, oh, hold on a second. This, this might be the prophet Moses said was coming that would be like him, but even better. Maybe this Jesus is it. And what what am I saying? I'm saying Moses' faithfulness was a foreshadow of one who is greater. 
You start to really look at both of their lives, there's a lot of things that, that, that coincide and line up. Go all the way to their, think about their birth. Both Moses and Jesus were born underneath a death decree. If, if the ruler of the time had been obeyed, both Moses and Jesus would have been slaughtered at their birth. Moses wasn't because of some, some brave midwives, praise God for them, right? And Jesus' family fled to Egypt. They both found refuge in Egypt. Moses didn't have to go far. He just floated down the Nile a little bit. Pharaoh's daughter found him. Jesus' family fled from the edict of Herod that all firstborn or all, all baby boys are supposed to be murdered, trying to get rid of this Messiah that Herod was scared of, this, this king of the Jews that Herod was scared of. So they, they both born under death decree, both find refuge in Egypt. And then, here's something that I hadn't really considered until I was digging in this again this week. So I'm just... I don't have time to get into this right now, so just put this in the mental crock pot and put it on low to simmer, okay? But here's an idea that I hadn't thought of before. Why is it every single time that the kingdom of darkness is trying to make big moves against the kingdom of light, they want all the men out of the way? Why do they want to murder all the little boys? Think about that for a minute. Think about what's going on in parts of our culture today, and, and we'll talk about it later, all right? Hmm, we like that, huh? Just interesting to me. Kill all the boys. Let's get them out of the way. Get the ones that are going to be men of God out of the way. Hmm. Interesting. What else? So they both found refuge in Egypt. Both Moses and Jesus spent 40 days alone with God fasting. Right? Jesus went to the wilderness. Moses, during the receiving of the Ten Commandments and the tablets, 40 days, both of them. No bread, no water, just the presence of God. Those are some ways that they're, they're similar and there's more that we could look at. But then you also start to see some slight variations that begin to lend credence to the fact that yes, there are similarities between both the life and ministry of Moses and Jesus, but there are also some distinct differences that should lead us to the clear conclusion that Jesus' faithfulness is to be highly uh, regarded higher than Moses and that Jesus deserves more glory than Moses. If you think about the time of the, the plagues and, and coming to the end of that, Moses told the people of God to kill a lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost to be saved, to avoid death once. Jesus was the final lamb whose blood would mean we are saved from death forever. Similarity, but one's greater than the other. I'll let you decide. That one should be pretty easy. I don't think you need multiple choice. God used Moses to split the Red Sea so that his people could follow him. Christ's sacrifice tore the veil of the temple so that his people could be in the very midst of his glorious presence forever. Moses told the people God would feed them with manna every day. Jesus came and said, I am the very bread of life that satisfies for all of your days. Moses struck a rock in the desert so the people could quench their thirst with water. Jesus offers living water and says, you'll never thirst again when you drink this water. Moses ascended the mountain and came back down with the law of God, written on tablets of stone. Jesus ascended to heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit so that the law of God could be written upon the tablet of our hearts. 
you start to see the patterns, you start to see what God was doing, more and more it, it becomes ridiculous to throw these accusations at God as if he's been, he's been too coy or too hidden about what he's doing. No, man, if you just really look at it, it's a plain as day. All these similarities, and yet in every single way, what Jesus did was superior. In every single way, Jesus proved himself more faithful and deserving of more glory than even the greatest among the Old Testament prophets. And, and, and here's the thing. You might be feeling bad for Moses right now. Like, oh man, but you know, Moses did so many, why are we, again, we're not dogging Moses. You gotta, you gotta remember, man, when it, when it was transfiguration time and Jesus is up on the mountain and it's time for, it's time for him to like be transformed into this, this, have this, this glory shine forth from him. You get, who showed up to like say, hey, this is right, this is good. Yeah, this is, is actually the one we were pointing to the whole time. Who popped up? Moses and Elijah, two guys that the people of God would have been tempted to think, ooh, I don't know, I don't want to, I really like those guys. Those are like my, those are, my, those are Hebrew superheroes. You understand what I'm saying? Like that's, that's their Superman, Moses and Elijah. Elijah got the fire from heaven. Elijah rode a fire chariot to heaven. Elijah, they had Elijah t-shirts and lunch boxes, right? That's what they sold at the, at the Jerusalem Disney store, okay? They didn't have Iron Man. It was Abraham and Moses and Elijah. You know, Elisha probably had some too. You know, he's like a lesser character, but whatever, right? Shouldn't be. That, we don't have time for that. Here's the thing. You, you get my point? But, but who did God make sure... Your, boys, go down and show up at that transfiguration. Just in case these guys are confused and they don't, they're, they're afraid that if they if they put their, you know, Moses lunchbox away and, and have a Jesus lunchbox now and they're, 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 that's gonna be, they're gonna be doing something wrong, go down there and make sure they know. This is okay, this is good, this was the plan all along was for this, the final greatest of the prophets to come. And, and you know, something interesting, you, you may not have noticed this, this, every time an Old Testament prophet wanted to share something that the Lord said with the people, they, they, would say, they would say this phrase, thus saith the Lord, right? Does that sound familiar? If you've ever read your Old Testament at all, you've, you've heard somebody got a message from God. Moses said it all the time. All the prophets, as God spoke through them, those, those bits and pieces of the redemptive story that he shared, those glimpses that were all pieces of a puzzle that when you put it together, what you got was Jesus and the gospel, right? They would always say, thus saith the Lord. Go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And look for a place where Jesus says, thus saith the Lord. You won't find it. But you know what Jesus did say? Verily, verily, I say, I say unto thee. Didn't he? I say unto thee. Again, clearly he was moving. There, there was all the skerfuffle, right? Is, is he, he's, well, I mean, he's clearly a prophet. He's, you know, healing people of sicknesses and he's feeding people and like people come back from the dead. So like clearly this guy's a, a prophet, but do you understand this is part of also what ticked the leaders off because Jesus didn't come say, thus saith the Lord. He said, I say, and no problem with it. This, this again is when, when people, when people try to tell you, oh man, you're, Jesus never said he's God, yet he did in so many ways, <laughs> both plainly and less plainly, but for, for the people of that day, it was, there was no mystery to what he was doing. Because for a prophet to say in his own authority, I say to thee, and then say things to the people that, that presumably is, is the wisdom of God, 
He's putting himself on par with God. And in case you're wondering, well, I don't know if they got it back then. Yes, they did because they tried to kill him all the time for that exact reason. And then they finally succeeded when God said, now it's okay because this was a part of my plan the whole time. Okay? All right. Amen. I just, I just, you, you could never convince me that all of these detailed similarities between the life of Moses and Jesus are coincidence. You, you'll, you can't, I won't buy it. I hope you won't either. And you might be thinking, I think some people would be like, okay, yeah, sure. Well, but how do we know for sure? Like, couldn't, couldn't the, couldn't the writers of the New Testament just knew what the Old Testament said? And if they were gonna, if they were gonna drum up this Jesus myth, like couldn't they just write all that and just kind of make sure it lined up? Like, how are you sure this is God that did that? And it's like, man, because I, if, if you, you might think, well, if I hadn't seen it with my eyes, how do I know, right? Well, here's the thing, like, you, you, I'm guessing um, you did not see the Declaration of Independence signed. Did you? But you're moving forward as if that happened with a high degree of confidence. Why? Because we count on the historical recording of the events that led up to it. And, and you might say, oh, well, yeah, but we have a copy of the Declaration of Independence. We have a bunch of ancient copies of the scriptures as well. Hello, right? Like more fragments and whole pieces of ancient scripture than any other uh, literature of antiquity whatsoever. And so my point is, like, if that would be your hang-up, just please do an honest intellectual look at the historical validity of the gospel accounts and all. Just look at it, man. I don't have time to do it all right now. I'm just saying, this is not, like, there were Herods and all, there, there was a Caiaphas. Like, we, we can verify all these things, all these bits and pieces. There was a Jesus. Now, did he rise from the dead? There's debate. There's also a lot of things you can look at that would, I think, bring you to the conclusion that the most reasonable thing to assert with all the evidence available is yes, he did. Okay? Because for sure, a humble Galilean peasant showed up and rocked the world 2,000 years ago. And, and you got to count for that at least, okay? All right, amen. Verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... And then this is going to move into, uh, so the, the second half of seven, which I don't really know why those that put chapters and verses in broke it up this way. It's a little weird, but whatever. Glad I didn't have to make all those decisions. Uh, starting in the second half of seven all the way to 11, this is a quotation from Psalm 95. Okay, so we're going to get into that. But I just want to deal with this idea. It's really important. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. And then what does, then what does the writer do? What does the author do? Then quotes the Psalms, the Old Testament scripture. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says and gives you several verses from Psalm 95, what, what do we have there? Why is that significant? It's significant because it, it absolutely speaks to the doctrine of the inspiration of the scriptures. For this author, the fact that Psalm 95 is, was considered among the Old Testament canon, he says... This author says, the whole, I can look at Old Testament scripture and say with confidence, the Holy Spirit said that. Now, God used, God by the Holy Spirit used David. David 
physically wrote Psalm 95. But this idea is of the inspiration of the scriptures that the Psalms and the Proverbs and all of the Old Testament and now what we have in the New Testament, here's what I want you to understand. This is an important doctrine for us because it, it affects a lot of how we see things and how we conduct ourselves. The scriptures are the very words of God. So that has a lot of implications, I think. It has, <clears throat> it has a, a serious implications about even how you think about what we're doing right now. Where you rank in importance what we're doing right now. Where you rank in importance throughout your week, cracking open this Bible and spending time with the very words of God. John pushes it even farther and says that somehow, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Verse 14, somehow the very essence of Christ is contained within this Word. Well, Pastor Vince, explain exactly how that works. Sorry, you'll have to find someone smarter than me, and they're probably making it up too, because that's a hard concept to understand. But the Bible says it's true. And so I, I just want to, since we're here and since it says this, I just want us to think for a second about how we think about time in the scriptures throughout the week, but also what we're doing here. You may not, maybe you've not, maybe you've wondered, you could be newer to the faith. And so I don't, I don't want to say this with any kind of attitude. You may wonder, why does it seem like the centerpiece of the gathering of God's people, well, here anyways, <laughs> is the preaching of God's word? It's not everywhere. Um, well, that's because if you look at Paul's instruction to Timothy, uh, that's what he says to do. Preach the word. To focus upon the teaching of the scriptures. That that is spiritual nourishment for the people of God. That these very words of God are like bread of life for you. Now, there's, and, here's, and here's my problem a little bit with sometimes I think how... <clears throat> This is, this is thought about. Um, I understand humans are humans and we have tendencies and we got to understand like human nature and, and we have limitations and all that. But like, like for example, I just, I just want to, I just want to out of this speak to this, this constant drumbeat that I hear all the time that uh, it's 2022 and preaching doesn't really work with modern people and, and you can't preach more than 25 minutes or people aren't going to listen anymore. Or you're going to lose everybody. Look, <clears throat> uh, I, <laughs> I can't get out of my mind the, the story of Ezra busting out the word of God with the people of God around the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, man, they bust the word of God out, just the law of God, and they just read the scrolls from morning until late afternoon. And the people are cut to the quick with conviction. There's no commentary. There's no funny jokes. There's no extra stories to try to keep your attention. They just read the book. And the people were transfixed upon it. Well, that was then. This is now. I don't care. <laughs> because what you're interested in has a lot to do with more with the condition of your heart than some inherent capacity that we do or don't have, okay? Oh, well, are you sure? Yeah, because pre-pandemic, I'm not even gonna give you pandemic numbers because I know those are skewed. Pre-pandemic, the average person spent two hours a day on Netflix. Relax, I'm not coming after your Netflix. Husbands and wives, go Netflix and chill. You have a great time, I don't care, okay? There is built into 
even what the word of God teaches us, there's nothing wrong with leisure, is there, Dan? There's nothing wrong with leisure. There's nothing wrong with relaxing. And if you want to relax and watch something on Netflix, praise God. But don't tell me you can't listen to the word of God for more than 25 minutes. If that, whatever dribble is coming through the Netflix box is keeping your attention for two hours on average, and here's something for you. The average person spends 25 minutes a week deciding what to watch on their streaming service. So tell me one more time, tell me one more time that all you can handle is a 25-minute sermon. Please, somebody, somebody come tell me that. No. It has to do with your appetites. It has to do with what you're cultivating in your heart. It has to do with what you've... Well, and somebody could say, well, I just... Yeah, man, you know, TV, movies, that, that keeps my interest. The sermon just doesn't keep my interest. Friend, don't... I'm just asking you just not to stop there and just assume that, oh, well, that's a satisfactory answer then pray to God that he would cultivate you a hunger and thirst for something that's actually going to nourish your soul and have some eternal value. Ask Jesus for help. If that's true for you, I get it. That might be true. It's okay. I understand. We could all slip into that. It's a potential for anybody. Because I, I you know, I get it. <laughs> I'm one guy standing up here with one vocal range talking about one thing for 45 minutes-ish, sometimes more, right? Like, I get, I get all the human nature elements of that. I get the Netflix. It's like the screen changes every 10 seconds and things are happening, blah, 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 right? I understand the physical elements of it, but what I'm saying is just don't, don't come at me and tell me we only get 25 minutes a week in the very thing that God gave us to sustain us and to nourish us spiritually. Twenty-five minutes a week deciding what to watch. So, just anytime you want to come talk to me about sermon length, just just remember I want to talk about that too. <laughs> it's coming up. Okay, okay. Now, the author is pushing us towards seeing that Jesus' faithfulness is worthy of more reverence and glory than even the faithfulness of Moses in his day. And now he's going to continue that line of thought by quoting from Psalm 95. This is second half of 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, if you go to Psalm 95 and you know how to do a cross-reference in your Bible, also not included in this quotation from Hebrews, there's the name of the place. They're escaping me right at the moment. Ask Pastor Andrew later. But what, the name of the place of what he's exactly talking about in the psalm, when they provoked me, uh, is in the day of trial. Or you can go to Exodus 17 is where this is found. If you, so Psalm 95 is referencing Exodus 17. Hebrews 3 is referencing Psalm 95. Okay, so do, do, there's your connection. Now, if you look at, well, let me just finish this. It's in the day of trial in the wilderness where your father tried me by testing me and saw my works. <clears throat> 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so this, what happened? If you look, go to Psalm 95 and then go back to Exodus 17, the reference here, this testing, this specific time that's being referenced, many times where Israel 
shot off at the mouth during that wilderness journey, okay? But this is specifically in reference to the fact that at a certain place along the journey, there's no water. And so the people are getting upset and saying things to Moses like, what did you do? Bring us out of Egypt out here to die? We got nothing to drink. There's nothing for the cattle to drink, right? And so they're grumbling against Moses and, and, and grumbling against God. Moses goes to the Lord. Lord, what are we going to do? And most of you know the story. Uh, God tells Moses to, to take the staff and to strike the rock. And out of that rock comes forth a great volume of water, enough that all the people and animals can drink, okay? So first thing I want you to see is just the, <laughs> this idea of like, we're going to come back to this, but the faithfulness of God, even when we are not, okay? And why, why am I saying that? <clears throat> because, because the water from the rock, okay? If that part of the show, just, just and I'm going to call it a show, maybe that'll bring your attention back in, right? If you wish you were watching Netflix right now. Just imagine this is a show, okay? Uh, at that part of the journey, man, we've got to think about what had already happened, Okay? Rewind all the way back to when God calls Moses to start getting involved and meddling in this situation. Okay? They had already seen ten plagues come upon Egypt by the power of God. They had already seen the death angel come through and then be saved by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. They had already seen the Red Sea split and the armies of Egypt be consumed behind them. They had already picked manna up off of the ground and eaten it. And then... Start grumbling about there not being any waters if God's not going to provide. What? This is why God talks about his anger being kindled by this. You might be thinking, why is God so cranky? Of course they want water. Yes, but what, you, you, how have you seen all of that? And, and your answer is to, is to get all grumbly and come to Moses and, and, and talk like God brought you out there to kill you. Or God's not going to provide or be faithful. He's been faithful all these times in these incredibly extravagant ways. Like, it's, it's not... Well, maybe there's some other alternate scientific explanation for the Red Sea crossing. No, man! The Red Sea parted just enough time for the Israelites to get across and then closed when the Egyptians came in. Right? We're going to call that a miracle. Manna pops up, same time every day. You can go pick it up, you can eat it. It's like Frosted Flakes or something. I don't know. You know hopefully there's some in heaven and we can try it. It'd be cool. Um, but it happens just exactly like God said. It'll be there every day. It'll sustain you. Don't try to hoard it. Trust me every day. We don't have any water, Moses. Right? <clears throat> now, it's very easy for us to sit here and, and kind of cackle and point at the stupidity of the children of Israel. But friends, how many of you are willing to join me in being honest that we end up grumbling and questioning whether God's going to be faithful? Because not only do we have the historical record of the plagues of Egypt and the Red Sea and the manna and we know about the rock and we know about the tablets and we know about Elijah and Mount Carmel and we know about all that, but we also know about the birth of of Christ, the life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and yet, if God was going to be angry with anybody about grumbling about anything, it should be us. 
We have far more culpability in the grumbling department or the lack of trusting in God's faithfulness department. And again, you might say, yeah, but the Israelites, they got to see the Red Sea. They got to eat the manna. They got to drink the water from the rock. Look, man, we are drinking from the water that is Christ right now. We are eating of the bread that is Christ right now. I know you may not have physically been there, but look at this word. Look at the testimony throughout centuries now of everything God said would come to pass, come to pass. How else do you explain thousands of years before when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God makes a promise that yes, a serpent will bruise the the Savior's heel, but he's going to crush his head and then he delivers. And then a Savior comes in every other way that Christ was foreshadowed, even through the very life of Moses, every way, all the little snippets and then And then God does it. And then a baby is born in Bethlehem. And that baby rises up to the point of prominence that the Romans and the Jews decide they need to kill him or else he's going to run everything. And then a bunch of haggard country boys that that nobody would have listened to for any reason start to preach that this Jesus is worthy of your worship. you got Peter the fisherman who just right before this denied he even knew Christ, as the Holy Spirit sit upon him, steps outside in the street and preaches a sermon that would not draw the attention of the average human or endear them to it. It wasn't like, hey guys, guess how much God loves you. No, it was, you guys killed Jesus and you're responsible, repent. And 3,000 people were like, yes! Tell me more. And I want to go tell more people about it. I mean, you can come up with some other kind of cockamamie explanation for how all that happens. I'm just telling you, friends, because of God's word, we don't get to have an excuse that I I didn't see Jesus on the cross or I I didn't get what Thomas got to touch his wounds. Jesus already addressed that. It's one thing to see with your physical eyes and believe. It's one thing to another completely to believe by the eyes of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And faith, man, I trust faith more than I trust my eyeballs in many situations. Because not everything you see is even necessarily true. If you don't believe, I mean, look, look at the deep fake stuff they have now with videos and all that. I mean, don't, you're, I, I'm going to trust the eyes of faith over, over, over these visual receptors, particularly even at, more so at this point in history. So do with that what you will, okay? Here's the bottom line. When we look at this, we look at at this quotation from Psalm 95, we know what it's talking about. It's talking about this occasion in the wilderness where the people were grumbling about water. And then he says, you know, and they saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath they should not enter my rest. So it wasn't, it wasn't the occasion of the water at the rock at Horeb that, that led to ultimately um, the entirety of the older generation. Uh, you know, we send 10 spies into the promised land. God said, that's your land. You can go get it. I'll go with you. You send 10 spies. Two come back. Joshua and Caleb say, yes, we can do it. The rest say, nope. There's big guys over there. We're scared. We don't, wanna, we don't think we can do it. Blah, blah, blah. And... and much of the, the people of the older generation, the grumblers, decided, yeah, that's, we're going to go with that. And, uh, 
What is that? It's a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God's faithfulness. It's a lack of an ability to look at the past to see what God has done again and again and again and again and again and transfer that by faith into the future and believe he's going to keep doing it. That's the issue. And this is what we're being encouraged to stay away from. That's why Psalm 95 is quoted here. Don't do this. Look to Christ's faithfulness. Look to his faithfulness. Stare at it. Consider it. Look at it again. Think about it. Fill your heart and mind with it all the time. Not just the faithfulness of God that is revealed to us in the scriptures, though that is probably the most important, but remember the faithfulness of God to you individually. Fill your heart and mind with all the occasions that you know God has been faithful. That God has fulfilled his promises in your life. Let your mind and heart be filled with that so that in the day of difficulty, because the day of difficulty is coming, so that when storms rage, you are standing upon that... How do you... Because some of you, we sing about Christ being our foundation. We sing about, you know, everything else is moving sand. You might be like, well, that's kind of like an abstract concept. What does it even mean for Christ to be my foundation? This is part of what it means. To have your heart and mind constantly full of the faithfulness of God. To be convinced of his goodness and his purposes towards you. To know that because he never, ever, ever has failed to keep a promise ever that he's not going to start today. That's part of how Christ is an immovable foundation for you to stand on. That's part of how when the winds and the rain come, your house, whose builder should be God, will stand. And we should consider God's faithfulness, we should be even more enamored with God's faithfulness when we consider how unfaithful we often are. And that is the juxtaposition we see here as we're called back to the Exodus narrative over and over again, the people of God. And you might, you might look at the end here and, and, you know, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And you might be thinking, man, well, that, it seems like God's faithfulness then, like, it failed in the end, right? Because yes, he provided manna even though they grumbled. Yes, he provided water even though they grumbled. But, but in the end, many of them ended up not going into, the, they didn't go. Moses and a bunch of the children of Israel did not go to the promised land. They died in the wilderness. You might be thinking, well, where's God's faithfulness there? But friends, we got to remember this, this idea. What's he talking about them entering? His rest. And there's, we literally could preach an entire sermon, maybe sermon series on all that the Bible means when it comes to the rest of God. Because it's it's not just one thing, it's multiple things in in kind of different times. So, but here's the point. If, If you don't love God, and you don't trust God, then being with God is not going to be rest for you. And I'm actually, though it breaks my heart to know that there are many people who do not love God and do not trust God and therefore cannot find rest in God, that is heartbreaking. I am am very glad that God has not set this thing up where it's just this dictatorial, he doesn't care whether you love and trust him, you're going to, You're going to be with me. What God has looked for from the beginning. Why did, how did Abraham get this thing kicked off? By trusting God in faith. It was by faith that Abraham was called righteous. That's all, that's what God has been looking for from the beginning. And what does it mean to have faith in God, to trust God? It means to see his faithfulness, to love him for his faithfulness, to love him for his goodness, to love him for his love. For us. And the only way God's presence is going to be rest for you 
is if you have genuinely come to the place of seeing he's worthy of your trust and your love and your worship. Right? The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. That's always going to be true. May the light of the Son of God be as upon our hearts wax. May it melt us, always. May we keep soft hearts. What, what is the admonition here? Don't harden your hearts. Don't get apathetic. Don't, don't let yourself sit and, and, and think about all the hard things and, and fill your mind and heart with all the ways that what you wish was different right at this moment. Is, is it okay to bring petitions before the Lord? Is it okay to ask God for things to change? Absolutely it is. But don't, don't, don't. Let your heart and mind be emptied of all of the, the times that God has been faithful, either in his word or in your life. And this is part of what it means for Christ to be a firm foundation, for him to be both our apostle and our high priest. And may the Lord help us in it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for this first half of Hebrews 3. Uh, Lord, thank you that your word is not sanitized, that your word is not whitewashed, but we see, we see the strain and we see the conflict. We see the difficulty of, of all of what you have made known to us through your word. It's, it's not all uh, rainbows and unicorns. It's, it's not all even necessarily pleasant to consider. Uh, but Lord, we know sin is not pleasant to consider and neither is, is the death that sin brings. And so part of what you've done is made very clear for us why you needed to send a Savior, why sin does lead to death. You have shown yourself to be the very source of life. You have shown us that it is in our waywardness that we move away from you, that we have a tendency to separate from you who is life for us. You're the vine and we're the branches. And Lord, forgive us for every time we've tried to operate as if we could be a branch on our own because we're often fools. And Lord, forgive us for not minding our appetites, not for buying into the lie that somehow what you have had to say to us and what you are saying to us is, is not interesting. Lord, that is so foolish and, and we're tempted by it all the time. And there's well-meaning people trying to, trying to get the gospel message maybe to, to more and, and to different people. And, and Lord, I, I know you're about that. You're about your word, your gospel getting to as many people as possible. You made that clear in your word, but Lord, help us to, to keep in mind that there, there are boundaries to how that is done and that, that we should never compromise to, to, to go wide. We should not compromise going deep with you. Lord, I ask you to take us deeper. I ask you to cultivate in each one of us a hunger and thirst that, that cannot be satisfied this side of eternity. Help us, Lord, to to yearn, but in a way that drives us towards what, what really helps us more anyways, what, what pours more life and light into us. Um, we are an easily distracted people, and we need your help with this. I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you are faithful. And Lord, help us, please, help us to respond to your faithfulness. 
with faithfulness. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.